The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, you alone are God. You alone are our cornerstone. You alone are wise and always true. And so, God, as we come before your word, let us come not not critiquing the word, but letting the word critique us. May we sit under it with humility, with open hearts, with moldable hearts, with teachable hearts. For our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start with a question. A question that maybe you have asked before. The question is this, does God want you to be happy? A little less than a month from now, we'll be celebrating our Independence Day, the 4th of July, and you'll probably hear these words from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are You've heard it before. Good. What's so interesting to me about this verbiage is that it does not say that we have the right to life, liberty, and happiness. It says we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think our founding fathers were very perceptive in understanding that happiness takes effort that happiness is often elusive. Two weeks ago, I was on vacation, and vacation is a time that's supposed to be a time of great happiness, right? Well, I pursued, someone laughed already? (laughs) Maybe you had a similar experience to me then. You know, I pursued happiness by trying to check off the to-do list items that have been falling behind. I I pursued happiness by doing special things with my family that we don't normally do, like go to a movie or go out to eat. I pursued happiness by going over to my in-law's lake house for a couple days. And when I returned, people would say, hey, how was your vacation? And I would say, it was okay. I'd say, really, why was it just okay? Well, my vacation was not all that happy. You see, it wasn't because of the things we did or didn't do, but it was because of my attitude. You see, one thing that vacation can often do is it can be a mirror reflecting your heart. You know, when I was trying to check off the to-do list items on my list, my children were in there saying, Dad, how can I help? And they were trying to help me. And, and as generous and loving and helpful as they were, I still saw myself getting frustrated because it maybe wasn't precisely how I wanted it or in the time frame that I wanted it. As we were driving over to Holcomb to go to the lake house and, and we're heading over, I could notice that my fuse was very short and I was very angry inside. And so when the kids would, would maybe get a little bit out of line, I'd pump the brakes and I'd threaten them on more than one occasion. I pull over here and you can walk to the lake house, right? I don't care if it's 200 miles. You can walk there. I'm sure the only, I'm the only one who does those things. 
But vacation was hard, but it was good because it was like a mirror. And it revealed to me just how, how dark my heart was, how unhappy my heart was, how impatient, how unloving, how selfish I am. You know, we pursue happiness in many ways. And I would actually argue that we probably spend much of our day pursuing happiness. We pursue happiness through great vacations, through personal accomplishments, through athletic or academic achievements. We pursue happiness through having the perfect family and the American dream. But let me ask you a question. Are you happy? How is your pursuit of happiness going? C.P. Snow once said, the pursuit of happiness is a most ridiculous phrase. If you pursue happiness, you'll never find it. See, maybe you're here today because despite your collection of things and accomplishments and relationships, you are still searching for happiness. If that is you, I have good news and I have hard news. The good news is that today Jesus is going to tell us how to be happy. The hard news is that it is probably contrary to everything you have ever believed. See, our culture tells us that the way to gain happiness is by pursuing happiness. Today, Jesus is going to tell us that the way to gain happiness is by pursuing him, by pursuing his kingdom in this world, even when you're on vacation. If you would please open up to Matthew chapter 5. It is page 809 in the Red Bible, page 1024 in the Children's Bible. In case you weren't here last week, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount this summer. Um, this is early in Jesus' ministry. Jesus starts to gather followers. He's healing people, and so people get excited. He's teaching, and people start following him around. At one point, he has this great crowd, and so he gets up on a mount, and he starts to speak to the people, and that's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And as he is teaching these people, he's starting to tell them about a very different kingdom, a very different world, a world with different values and different customs and different motivations, a, a happy world, a holy world with a happy people. And Jesus is beginning to teach these people about the kingdom of God, which is so very different than the kingdom of man. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with what we call the Beatitudes. This comes from a Latin phrase. That Latin word that says, that is beatus, which means blessed or happy. And so here Jesus is going to tell us how we might be happy in a way that we had never considered, but that we had always hoped for. And so let's read together Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As I searched for different sermons and things on this topic, I noticed that most churches spent four to eight weeks on this passage. We're going to be spending one with eight main points. I'm not joking. They will be quick. But in order to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate in these Beatitudes, we need to understand the structure of the Beatitudes. And so there are three parts of these Beatitudes that I want to point out. The first is there is a pronouncement of blessing. Jesus will say, blessed are thee, or blessed are those, or blessed are you. In the original Greek, the word for this is makario, which could be translated blessed or also translated happy. Now, most translators appropriately do not translate this as happy because in our culture, happy has such a superficial meaning, doesn't it? Happy often means personal, temporal pleasure due to a situation. In our culture, happiness is referring to something that is circumstantial, uncertain, temporary, and even insecure. But what Jesus is talking about when he says happiness, he's talking about something far deeper and far more enduring than the superficial happiness we think of today. Blessedness is a state of enduring happiness and joy in the depth of our soul because of a right relationship with God. And so he starts each of these by saying, blessed. The second part is the condition of blessedness. The first six beatitudes are internal heart conditions, poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. And the last one we'll see is a little bit different. But all of these attributes are attributes that God has planted inside his people. And so in some ways, you already have these attributes. And what Jesus is doing is he is acknowledging that and he's calling you to foster these attributes. Think of them similarly to the fruit of the Spirit. God has planted those in you and he calls us to foster the fruit of the Spirit. The third part then is the substance of the blessedness. What is it that gives us happiness? The kingdom of heaven. Comfort from God, inheriting the earth, satisfaction, mercy, seeing God. These are the substance of our blessing. And again, if you belong to Jesus Christ, these are already yours in Christ. But as you foster these gifts, as you foster the conditions of blessedness, then these substance of blessedness will be all the more for you to enjoy. Let me give you an example to help kind of lay this out. Let's pretend you are really good at piano, okay? And people will come up to you and they say, you know what, you are so gifted at piano, meaning that God himself has gifted you to play piano. And maybe you can enjoy that gift uh, in part if you just play piano at Christmas and family functions and things like that. But if you really want to enjoy the blessedness of that gift, you have to cultivate that gift. You have, to, you have to practice it. You have to discipline yourself for it. You have to learn how to do it better. You have to hone your skills. And then you can play the piano and you can listen to it and you can fully enjoy it both with your ears and with your hearts. 
You can enjoy that gift that God has given to you. Similarly, as we read through these Beatitudes, keep in mind that if you are in Christ, you already have these blessings in Christ. These conditions have already been planted in you by Christ, and he is calling us to cultivate these blessings in order to enjoy happiness and the fullness of blessing of sweet communion with God. And so these are yours, and we are called to cultivate them for our joy and for God's glory. Now, like I said, we have seven main points, so let's get started. Verse 3. I'm just going to walk through them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is talking to a particular people who knew what it was like to be poor, to have no money. At various times of your life and my life, I'm sure we've known what it's like to not have very much money, but poverty is probably very foreign to us. But for those who were impoverished, they were completely dependent. They're completely dependent on someone else to provide for their basic needs. Maybe they would be dependent on a stranger or on family members or on friends or on the church or maybe on, uh, maybe on just some sort of system that would provide care for them. Whatever it may be, these impoverished people would be completely dependent on others for their basic necessities. Here, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are spiritually impoverished. Now, this may seem odd to us because it is contrary to every other philosophy this world throws at us. You see, the common belief of our world and of every other religion is that we come to God making some contribution to our acceptance before him. We think, you know, I will give what I can and God will make up the difference. I will try really hard to, to not cheat, to not steal, to not say bad things, to be patient, to be loving, to be caring, to not hurt anyone. I'll try to do all of these things. And wherever I fall short, I will trust that God will make up the difference. But here, Jesus is saying that if you want to be happy, you must consider yourself spiritually bankrupt before God and desperately dependent upon Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In this world, kingdoms do not belong to poor people. Kingdoms belong to rich people. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the most valuable kingdom of all, the greatest kingdom of all, the greatest kingdom, the kingdom of God belongs only to the poor. As a matter of fact, you have to confess your poorness to be a part of this kingdom. You must confess that you have nothing to bring, nothing to contribute in order to enter this glorious kingdom. You know, we sing of our spiritual poverty in the song Rock of Ages. We sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You know, when you look at these words, they're absolutely pathetic, but they are glorious for sinful people. And I'm so happy that they are true. You see, if we cling to our good days and our good works and our good moments, we will be miserable people. We will always be chasing that dangling carrot of righteousness, never knowing if it is enough to please God. If we want to be happy in Jesus, we must come to him and say, Lord, I got nothing. I got nothing to contribute. All I have to bring to you is filthy rags. All I have to bring to you is myself. We must confess we're spiritually bankrupt 
and cling to Christ alone for salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Again, this seems like a contradiction to our ears. Jesus is saying, happy are those who lament. It doesn't seem like those things could work together, could be together in the same person. But Jesus is saying, happy is the person who laments, who mourns, who grieves. You see, there is a temptation among Christians to minimize the brokenness of this world. We say things like, God works all things for good of those who love him, which is completely true and is a great comfort. But maybe we use it to minimize the pain and the suffering and the brokenness. Or maybe we'll say, you know what? God is sovereign over all things, which is true. It gives us great hope. But it should not minimize the pain of the devastation of the fall. You see, God grieves over the effects of sin. God grieves over the fall. And we should feel those effects in the depth of our being. The injustice of the world should sadden us. It should anger us. We should mourn over it. We should mourn over the lives of infants being put to death every day in the wombs of women. We should mourn over the oppression of the foreigner and the sojourner. We should mourn over the neglect of the poor and the hungry. We should mourn over sickness and disease and pain and death. We should mourn over broken relationship and parentless children. You see, the Beatitudes are not for perfect people in a perfect world. The Beatitudes are for real people in a broken world. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How will mourning bring us comfort? How will mourning bring us comfort in ways that we won't know comfort unless we mourn? Well, this past week, I was sitting with a friend, and he said, I I just need to share a few things with you. And he started talking about a variety of very difficult things going on in his life, a variety of very broken things in his life. And as he's starting to talk, wanting just to share a snippet, he starts to sob uncontrollably and start to share more and more. And as he gets done sharing, he talks about how helpful this was just to share it with another person, that they could shoulder some of that burden. All I did really was just sit there and listen. Second Corinthians 1 tells us, That we belong to a God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions. And so if we ignore or suppress or trivialize the brokenness of this world, we actually harm ourselves. Because we do not foster a mourning that gives us the ability to fully enjoy the comfort of God. You see, we not only have a God who hears all of our problems and sees all of our brokenness, but we have a God who is redeeming it all for his glory. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted by God himself. Verse five, blessed are the meek. When I hear this word meek, the first thing that comes to my mind is some guy with a really wimpy handshake. But meekness is not weakness. Meekness is gentleness. It is power under control. It is authority and strength used not for your own agenda, but to serve God and to serve others. The best illustration of this I could think of is there's a a famous theologian named Francis Schaeffer. Maybe you've heard of him, but Francis Schaeffer was a brilliant, brilliant theologian. And he was instrumental in defending the faith. 
And there were times where Francis Schaeffer would have these organized debates with atheists and agnostics and other people. And there were times when he would come against debaters that were honestly quite inferior to him intellectually. And one of his good, one of his, I guess, disciples, Jerem Barr, shares a time about how he came to this debate and it was clear that Schaefer could have just, just crushed this guy intellectually and they're debating. But Schaefer took his foot off the pedal because he didn't want to embarrass his opponent and he didn't want to dehumanize his opponent. You see, he used his, his power, his intellectual prowess not to destroy people, not to exert his authority, but to love and to care. This is a picture of meekness, controlled power for the sake of serving others. You know, we're told in Numbers 12 that Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. But Moses did not start very meek, if you remember. He used his authority and his power to murder an Egyptian servant. God had to take Moses into the wilderness to show Moses who he is in light of who God is. And he humbled Moses, making him completely dependent upon him. And so I guess as we look at this, we should ask the question, how do we use our authority, our gifts, our talents? Do we use it to manipulate, to get what we want from the people? Or do we use it to serve God and serve others? Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, again, this is such a contradiction because if you want to inherit a lot of things in this world, if you want to get a promotion, if you want to take over a business, if you want to conquer the industry, you don't do it through meekness, typically. You do it through the dog-eat-dog world. But in the kingdom of God, the meek shall inherit the earth. When Christ returns and we have a new heavens and a new earth, the earth will belong to the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, Jesus is using language that they would have been very familiar with. You see, in that day in Israel, they did not have 24-hour gas stations or 24-hour supermarkets to run to, nor did they have refrigerators or freezers. And so these people knew very well what it was like to be hungry. You know, we know in part what it's like to be hungry. I don't know if you've ever done this where you go to a grocery store and you're shopping and, and as you look at all the food, you get so hungry and so you get a snack, a candy bar or granola bar or something. And, and by the time you're done shopping, all you have to give to the, the cashier is, is the wrapper, right? Have you ever done that? I've done that. They're okay with it. They look at me weird, but I'm hungry, right? And when you're hungry, you're very single-minded. You want to eat food, what Jesus is telling us here is that we should be single-minded in our devotion to righteousness, that we should hunger for it, that we should thirst for it, that we should pant for it, and that this will satisfy us. You see, Jesus is telling us that we should hunger for righteousness before God, which can only come through Jesus Christ. We should hunger for righteousness in our heart and in our conduct, wanting to do what is right. And we should hunger for righteousness in the lives of others and in the lives of the world, being pained and lamenting and grieving and mourning over the brokenness of sin in others' life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
You know, I think most of us are convinced that satisfaction comes from our dirty little secrets, from our secret sins, from our hidden pleasures. But the truth is those never satisfy. But hungering for righteousness gives us satisfaction because righteousness is who we were created to be in the image of God, and it's who we are in Jesus Christ. And so blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Christ's calling to be merciful is not simply an occasional impulse, but it is a constant inclination towards showing mercy to others. It's the disposition of showing compassion and tenderness to those who don't deserve it. Showing mercy is not easy. In fact, it is very sacrificial. It is costly. It costs us um, our own retribution as we often have to grant forgiveness. It costs us time and money as we give to those who are suffering. It is very costly. But Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Again, this is not saying that you can earn the mercy of God by being merciful to other people. But it is saying that if you are a merciful person, if you are giving mercy to others, if you're showing mercy to others, if you're forgiving, forgiving other people, then it is showing that you have experienced the mercy of God and that you will experience God's mercy in its full pleasure in this life and in the life to come. You see, we can only give mercy to the extent that we have received mercy. And so if you are giving a godly, supernatural mercy to others, then it means you have experienced that yourself from God. You see, at great cost himself, God in great compassion came and washed us clean in the blood of Jesus to free us from all indebtedness. And not only does God save us in his mercy, but he keeps us in his mercy. He promises no matter what we do, no matter how we sin, that he will never leave us or forsake us. You see, there's a direct correlation between the mercy you show others and your grasp of the mercy that God has shown you in your life. And so whoever it is in your life, probably someone in your own household or someone very close to you, whoever it is that who has hurt you or maybe betrayed you, God is calling us to show mercy to them. And whatever mercy you extend to them, God is reminding us that it does not compare to the mercy that God has shown you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Purity symbolized by, by cleanliness. If you think of purified water, you take the impurities out of the water. And the heart that Jesus is talking about is the entirety of our inner self, our thoughts, our will, and our emotions, our inner man. And so while while the Jews are often overemphasizing external ritual purity, here Jesus comes to emphasize internal purity, to cleanse the temple of our hearts, to identify the idols and to cast them out so that we might be single-minded in our devotion to God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Our motivation for purity is to see God more clearly, to enjoy him and have sweeter communion with him. You know, I think this beatitude is so timely in Wisconsin. This past week, as we were on vacation, or two weeks ago, we were at a beach in Holcomb, Wisconsin. And my six-year-old daughter comes up to me, and she sits on my lap, and she's perusing the beach. And 
she says to me, Daddy, why do so many girls have bikinis on? And I said, because they want to go swimming. I wasn't sure why she was asking the question. But then she clarified in her little six-year-old voice, she said, is it inappropriate? And I said, sometimes. See, opportunities for impurity are all around us. And the opportunities are even more abundant in summertime, to be honest. And I don't care if you're a woman or a man, temptation abounds. And what Jesus is telling us is the reason we should not entertain impure looks or impure thoughts is so that we can see someone more beautiful, so that we can see the beauty of God and enjoy sweeter communion with him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. This statement is acknowledging that peace is something that is valuable to God. But it is also something that is very fragile and takes effort to maintain. You know, people so often confuse peacemaking with passivity. They think that we can achieve peace by removing ourselves from tense situations and from tense relationships. But peacemaking is not passivity. In fact, peacemaking takes a great deal of activity. See, a peacemaker does not walk away. A peacemaker engages. They engage those who they have hurt for the purpose of reconciliation. They engage those who they have been hurt by for the purpose of reconciliation. When someone else comes to them and tells them of how another person has hurt them, they direct them back to that purpose for the purpose, back to that person for the purpose of forgiveness and reconciliation of that relationship. You see, peacemaking is not passivity, nor is it cowardly, nor is it proud. Peacemaking is active. It is for the brave. It is for the humble in Christ. And so God says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You see, God blesses peacemakers because God is all about making peace. In Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that all of us are born enemies of God because we are rebelling against him in our sin. And then in Colossians 1, the apostle Paul says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, the gospel tells us that God will stop at nothing to bring peace with his enemies. And to make peace with us, God did not stay at a distance in heaven, but God came near in Jesus Christ. You see, peacemaking for God was very active, very brave, and very humbling. We have a peacemaking God, a peacemaking heavenly Father. And as we go forth as peacemakers, we're reflecting that we indeed are the children of God. And so my question for you as we are applying these things is who are you not at peace with? You know, I'd be very cautious because sometimes there is physical danger involved and drawing near to that person may not be the wisest thing, but that is typically the exception and not the rule. But who maybe are you 
angry with? Or who is angry with you? We are called to do all that we can to be active in pursuing peace with that person for the purpose of reconciliation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Main point seven, we made it. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You know, the beatitude, this beatitude is a little bit different than the other beatitudes. And all the other beatitudes, the condition of blessing is based on something more internal, being poor in spirit, being a peacemaker, so on and so forth. But here, the blessing is based on something external, something that you have no control over. It's based on you being persecuted by the world. The blessing shows that God is passionate for his people. And the blessing comes to those who suffer for their godly passion. Notice in verse 10, 10, it says that blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness sake. In verse 11, blessed are you if you're persecuted on Christ's account. Again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. It is not saying blessed are you if you're persecuted because you are a jerk. But blessed are you if you're persecuted because you're pursuing Christ and his kingdom. Blessed are you if you're persecuted for standing up what is, right, what is right. Blessed are you if you're persecuted because you live for Jesus. You know, as we look at this passage, I think we are often mindful that there are Christians around the world that are being persecuted very severely, some at the cost of their own life. And so we may take this verse and we may say, well, this doesn't really apply to me. This applies to, to Christians in other places of the world. But I do think this applies to us here today. Russell Moore, in his inaugural address as the president of Ethics and Religious Liberties of the Southern Baptist Convention, says this. He goes, Brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors, we can no longer pretend that we are a moral majority in this country. We are a prophetic minority. Did you catch that? We are no longer a moral majority in this country. We are a prophetic minority who must speak into a world that is not different than any other era of the world's history, but is exactly what Jesus promised us the world must be. You see, the ethics and the values of the kingdom of God, of Christ's church, of the word of God, are increasingly divergent from the values of America. If you are a Bible-believing Christian, your views are growingly unpopular, no matter what political party you may ascribe to. Brothers and sisters, we must be winsome and gentle and loving and charitable in our discussions with others. But we cannot expect the world to have the same values as the kingdom of God. Whether it be our calling to love and care, like I said, for the sojourner and the foreigner, or to uphold that marriage is between one woman and one man, or our understanding that Jesus is the only way of salvation, we cannot anticipate that others would value those things. Because such values and doctrines are so ridiculous to the world. Some may choose to exclude you from their circles. Some may even choose to put you in prison. And what Jesus is reminding us in these verses is that this world is not our home. This world is not our kingdom. 
and no politician is our king. You see, this world is a world that we are just passing through. We are foreigners headed to the kingdom of heaven. And our king now and forevermore will be Jesus. And so he says, blessed are those that are persecuted. And how shall we respond to that persecution? Look at verse 12 with me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, it's not that we rejoice or are happy in the actual act of persecution. We would be masochistic if we did that. But we can rejoice and be happy in the midst of persecution because it is a startling reminder to us that this, again, is not our home. That heaven is coming. That God's redemption is pushing forth and that his kingdom will come in full. We rejoice because we know that we are going to home, going to the prophets who also endured persecution. And then verse 10 again, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me end with this. Earlier this year in a digital news outlet called Quartz, there was a very perceptive article that was written on happiness by Jeff Chang. And it's entitled this, In our pursuit of happiness, Americans are losing sight of what actually makes us happy. And then it has this huge picture of this woman looking at this wall full of TVs at Target. And he says this, he goes, The founders of the United States understood the pursuit of happiness to be a fundamental right. But just because we have that freedom for the pursuit doesn't mean we're always good at it. There's no question that we are passionate about happiness and will go through great lengths to get it. Yet the pursuit of happiness remains as elusive as ever. Here's the problem. We were never meant to go chasing after happiness itself. That's when we ended up missing it. Addicts on a very simplistic level understand this. And in one sense, we can all identify we might, now have, we might not have sacrificed family, possessions, or a career for a chemical dependency, but we have nevertheless know, know what it's like to go after the false promise of instant happiness, even at the expense of what we value. Too often, the pursuit of happiness leaves us empty in spite of our best intentions. And then he says, forget pursuing happiness. Pursue relationships instead. The deeper, more significant the relationship, the more potential for fulfillment and satisfaction. I think that's a really perceptive article, but it's incomplete. You see, the Beatitudes are a paradoxical way of pursuing happiness, not because they are backwards, but because we are backwards. You see, we find our greatest pleasure not in pursuing pleasure, but in pursuing a deeper, more significant relationship with Jesus. One final small illustration. I, before this, I was a youth pastor. I worked in youth ministry for several years, and one of the greatest heartaches I had was to watch students go off to college and abandon their faith, and to pursue happiness, and, and rebelling against God, and rejecting God, and going in all other directions, and I think all of us have probably been there at some point in time, but at the same time, we grieve over that. Well, on one such occasion, a young man came home, we'll call him Joe, and Joe was home from college and we were together and I was trying to challenge him on, on how he was living his life. 
And so I asked Joe, I said, Joe, let me ask you a question. Who are the happiest people you know? And he thought for a while, and his answer was, people who are in love with Jesus. And so I asked, why are you pursuing happiness in all these other things? Friends, if you hear one thing today, hear this. If you are unhappy, it is because you have been pursuing a thing and not a person. If you want to be happy, stop pursuing happiness and pursue Jesus every second of every day. Whether you are being persecuted for the name of Christ or on vacation in Holcomb, Wisconsin. And then you'll be happy and blessed beyond any measure you've ever known before. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for tearing back scales from our eyes. Lord, I, I confess my heart has gone down these, these, these counterfeit ways of pursuing happiness so many times, God. Help us, Lord, strengthen us to pursue you in all that we are, in all that we do, God. Lord, these, these words are so contrary to what advertisers tell us, to what we tell ourselves, God. And so, Lord, pray that you'd remind us throughout the week to seek first you and to seek your kingdom because you are where happiness is found. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we thank you for it, God. We pray that you would set it apart in our hearts and in our lives, God. And we come to it as a weak people, as a people that are spiritually impoverished in need of grace. Not, not the saving grace coming from it, but sanctifying grace to strengthen us in our fight to look to you in all of life. And so, God, we pray that you would do so by your grace, for our good, for our happiness, and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.